0: Well, take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. One of the questions from this morning's sermon actually provides us with a fitting launching point for our time in Proverbs tonight. The question was this Do you truly understand what it means to do God's will over your own? Do you truly understand what it means to do God's will over your own? That's the central issue in the book of Proverbs. Will you choose God's will? Will you choose God's wisdom? Will you choose God's way of living life? Or your own way of thinking? Your own way of doing? Sometimes looking at worldviews that we see around us outside the church help draw a contrast cause us to see more clearly what this means in the life of a Christian. Several years ago, a book with a shocking title hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was called, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Short stories. It's a memoir of debauchery and wickedness in the service of self, and no, I haven't read it, and I don't recommend you read it. But I do remember seeing it in an airport bookstore. From what I gather about the book, basically it's the story of one man's pursuit of whatever he wanted. Morality, ethics are all cast aside in the pursuit of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. More shocking than the title is that it was a bestseller for five straight years. Over one million copies of that book were sold. A book review in the New York Times in 2006 contain the following quote from the author. I'm completely honest about who I am, the good and the bad, he said. I live my life the way that I want to and not the way others want me to. That's a very appealing message to a lot of young kids. They're bombarded with these messages of this is what you're supposed to do. I show that the best way to live is to be true to yourself. The author developed a large following, his popularity soared, particularly among college aged men. One of his fans, named Fax Herbert, a 19-year-old freshman at Tufts University, says this in the article. He said that he and his friends related not just to the author's sometimes pornographic candor, but to his message as well. Fax says, we're all under a lot of pressure to pick a path and follow it. Here's a guy who didn't do what his parents wanted him to do or what society would have expected him to do. He blazed his own trail. Now, for many, that's the dream, or at least seems to be, a life with no boundaries, a life with no restriction. My guess is you're repulsed by that thought. You're repulsed by the title of the book, and I doubt you'd immediately be drawn to such a brash casting aside of God's will and God's ways and his commands. However, if we press in, just for a little while, press into our hearts, what about our own hesitancy to obey God in all areas of life? What does that reveal? I think it at least reveals a desire to fulfill our own wants, our own desires. They may not look the same way. They may not be externally repugnant as those in this book but it's still a desire to fulfill our flesh. It also reveals a lack of trust that doing God's will will ultimately bring satisfaction. We lack the confidence and the trust that doing what God has said, that actually living in accordance with his commands, his instructions will bring us satisfaction. And Proverbs 3 actually strikes right at the heart of that unbelief. We are confronted here with the reality that not only is wisdom the correct way to live, it's the best way. It's the most satisfying way to live. Wisdom is satisfying. Wisdom is fulfilling. Wisdom is blessed. Now what is wisdom? As we've been working through Proverbs, it's important to keep that in our mind. And wisdom in the context of Proverbs is the ability to make moral and ethical decisions that please God in any given situation. Concerns how we relate to God and how we relate to others in God's world. And the heart knowledge to take the right course of action in the countless decisions we make in our lives. Living wisely means doing the right things because we are thinking and believing rightly. And that rightness is defined by by God. Up to this point in our study, we've been shown that Proverbs is intended to make us wise enough to know that we aren't wise enough. There's a theme, it's relentless, it keeps coming at us. This is what wisdom looks like, and by the way, you're not wise enough yet. So you keep gaining wisdom, and the more wisdom you gain, the more you realize you haven't arrived. We've learned that fearing the Lord is the foundation for wisdom and knowledge, that wisdom invites us, warns us, and demands to be answered and that those who search for wisdom in the fear of the Lord will find it and be protected by it. Now as we come to chapter three, we not surprisingly see wisdom explained, instructions in wisdom, but we also see motivations for wisdom. Follow along as I read verses one through 12 of Proverbs chapter three. My son, Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. In these 12 verses, Solomon pairs instruction in wisdom. That is showing us what it is. What's wisdom in particular areas of life? With motivations for actually pursuing that wisdom. There are actually rewards for living a wise life. And they're not just heavenly. This text tells us there's rewards in the here and now. There are physical, earthly benefits for living wisely. Proverbs boldly teaches us that living out our days in accordance with the wisdom of God results in the most successful, the most satisfying, the most prosperous, indeed the most blessed life we can have. Now saying that a, a little bit may make you uncomfortable. You may be shifting your seat because it, it almost sounds like Solomon's, or at least my statement of what Solomon is teaching sounds like a best life now theology. And... We ask, what about suffering? What about examples of wise men that don't have lives of material or physical blessing? What about Jesus and the Apostle Paul? What about individuals right now in this church that are suffering? So at the outset of this, we need to understand Proverbs is not meant to carry the burden of all those questions because Proverbs, as a genre, in its intended place in God's word and understood rightly is not intended to account for every single circumstance that occurs in God's providence. Proverbs addresses all of life, but the truth contained in these pithy proverbial statements does not encapsulate every possible conceivable circumstance. The Proverbs weren't meant to bear that burden. And so a reminder of the importance of genre To rightly understand the Bible, we always need to know what form, where are we at, where are we at in scripture, what's the genre, what's the form, what are we reading, and why am I going to say all this up front? Because it's important. We just read. These are physical, literal promises for wisdom, and if we don't understand this, we could either misunderstand what's being said here and start looking at things with a slanted perspective on this earth, or we could just eliminate everything, take all the teeth out of what's said here by Solomon and spiritualize everything. And we don't wanna do either of those things. Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's communicated in this particular form as God intended and so we need to understand that when we're interpreting it so we don't make mistakes. And while a lot could be said in the simplest way, we just need to understand that Proverbs presents general truths without qualifying every single instance. They aim to communicate what is typical or normal. In other words, there is a normal, moral, ethical pattern in God's order, in God's economy, in God's world that he rules, that he made. And Proverbs teaches us how to live and what to expect in that pattern. And that doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. Life on this earth is full of exceptions. But those exceptions don't render the Proverbs that we just read either untrue or meaningless. To illustrate this, just consider for a minute some of our proverbs in English. Our modern day proverbs. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And you may say that, you may hear it. When you say that, does it imply that nobody ever finds separation or distance to make their heart actually grow colder? Or is it a promise that separation will automatically restore a relationship? No. How about this one? Practice makes perfect. Does this imply that practice is all that is required to be the best at any particular skill? Do I just need to practice enough to be an Olympian, or are there other reasons that I'm not? <laughs> we know intuitively as you hear those proverbs, you just know automatically because of the way that they're used, that they're generalizations, short, short truths about the way the world works, and that's what we find in Proverbs. The difference is these ones are inspired. Proverbs 10, 4 says, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. We can think of exceptions. There are lazy individuals that have amassed great wealth, and no doubt we know some of the hardest workers may be poor, and neither of those specific cases makes that proverb untrue. It's a generalization, the truth stands by God's authority actually because it's inspired that hard work in general leads to success and laziness in general leads to ruin. That's the truth of the Proverbs. They're not promises in the strict sense of the word. They're not promises that apply to every single situation under the sun. But as inspired revelation, they are authoritative truth. And so they represent this true picture of life. And specifically in the verses that are before us tonight, they present an enticement for pursuing wisdom. They entice us to pursue after wisdom by presenting and detailing the rewards that accompany wise living. So we want to structure our time through these 12 verses around six principles that direct and motivate our pursuit of wisdom. Six principles that direct and motivate our pursuit of wisdom. Really, what we wanna see here is that God's way is best. That's the enticement. Here's what wisdom looks like. And oh, by the way, it's not just the right way, it's the best way. God's way is the most satisfying, the most blessed. And in these 12 verses, the result should be that we abandon all self-confidence. We abandon all self-leaning all of our own so-called wisdom, and throw ourselves in the pursuit of God's way. Because not only is it the right way, it will ultimately bring us the most satisfaction according to God's truth. Now, each grouping of verses, as we work through here, each two verses is, is is a grouping. And some of those verses have more positive statements than others, but each two verses represents one of these principles. And each one contains an exhortation in wisdom, and that could be positive command or a prohibition. And then there's an accompanying motivation. So very simple, you work through it, we have wisdom presented, either a command or a prohibition, and then here's your motivation. Here's the motivation for running after and and heeding this wisdom principle. As we work through these verses, I want you to look for a few important things that will come up and keep them in the back of your mind. First is the importance of the heart the importance of the heart. Throughout these verses, especially early on, you will hear the heart as a part of the wisdom that is given here. You say, why does that matter? Because when we're talking about cause and effect, doing and then receiving for that doing, we're not simply just talking about uh, any old thing, just external behavior that will result in an external automatic reward. There's more to it than this. These are spiritual, realities and the rewards are for spiritual realities and so the heart is important the core of our being this isn't just external behavioralism this isn't just bend your will while your heart is stubborn and God will do these things for you even though inside you're a mess it's not the idea the heart is integral into the wisdom principles that Solomon gives us here the second thing is the importance of relationship with the Lord Throughout these 12 verses, keep in mind the importance of relationship with the Lord. The Lord's name is used several times throughout. And then saying this at the outset just gives us the parameters. These wisdom principles and the resulting rewards are for God's people. They're for believers. For us, they're for those who've been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes the, the wisdom is more general. These are connected to relationship with Almighty God through Christ. They, the Lord, his covenant name is used throughout, and Solomon is telling his son and connecting his son to that relationship and the way these things are, exerc- are, are worked out in life. So the, the wisdom principles are for those who know the Lord, and the rewards are for those who have a relationship with with the Lord. They're not hoops in other words. They're not hoops to jump through so that those who do these things can please like a a disinterested deity who's kind of off and like, okay, they did what I want so I'll throw a little blessing their way. And no, this is tight relationship language that's used here. And lastly, notice the connection of spiritual realities with physical realities in these verses. The directives of wisdom, which demand a spiritual response, are connected with the motivations for wisdom, which in many cases are physical. There's a connection between someone's spiritual condition and whether they're walking in a way that's wise according to the principles and the reward, which isn't explicitly spiritual. There's a physical blessing that's indicated in these verses for things that come as a result of spiritual wisdom. There's a connection in God's economy. It's not all one or all the other. Who we are spiritually matters for what we experience and what we enjoy physically on this earth, in God's economy. And part of the wisdom here is helping us to see that. So the first principle, hard obedience leads to a life of satisfaction. Hard obedience leads to a life of satisfaction. The first wisdom instruction he gives us is in verse one, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. We hear that familiar fatherly plea that comes up in Proverbs Solomon asking his son, pleading with his son to accept, to respond, and all the other things that this wise, godly father wants his son to take with him. Here he says, Don't forget my teaching. Literally, don't forget my law. Don't forget what I've instructed you in. Now, forget is not merely intellectual. Hey, don't read that and think like, forget your keys. Like you just forgot what your dad said. It, it, yes, it would involve a forgetting what was communicated, but a forgetting that is an overflow from disregard. Okay, he's not asking him, hey, I'm afraid that, that you're just, your mind isn't gonna catch any of these things, and when I give them to you, you're just gonna forget all of them and live a foolish life. The concern is actually that he's going to live a foolish life because he disregards the teaching of his father, and we get that because the second part of this principle is let your heart keep the commandments. In parallelism, the teaching and the commandments are together, not forgetting them is to keep them, to obey them, and the teaching and commandments here should be understood as God's will. Solomon is communicating the Proverbs, the wisdom to his son, and we need to understand that simply as God's will. The the words indicate God's law, God's instruction, God's commandments, it's God's will. What God expects, Solomon is teaching his son what God is like and what God expects from his people. And so he pleased with him, remember these things, and by remember I mean do them, keep them, the plea is for obedience from the heart. So we said right away we're confronted. This isn't mere behavioralism. He asked his son, let your heart keep my commandments. And the heart as you've heard off, often from this pulpit and the man who may or may not have coined that will be here next Sunday morning preaching with us but the heart is man's mission control center. The center of will and volition. It's not just like the warm and fuzzy part of your person, I feel the warm and fuzzies, my heart is where my emotions are stirred, but not my mind, not my intellect, not my will, no. It's your control center, it's you. It's what you want, it's what you do, it's what you think. It's the core of your being. Solomon tells his son it's from there that your keeping of these commandments needs to spring. It goes beyond behavior, which of course is included but it's not just external. This is an internalizing of the law that Solomon has given to the son, the commands of wisdom, and he says keep these. Obey these things. Wisdom is keeping the commandments of the Lord. The motivation for this comes in verse two. It's like a a divine carrot being dangled out in front of the son, why? What's one motivation, not the only, but what's one motivation for my heart, for your heart to keep these commandments? He says, for a length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Longevity. The first part of verse two, longevity. A long life, a full life. Solomon says to his son, obeying these commandments, living in wisdom, obeying them out of the overflow of your heart, will lead to a long, full life and peace. Peace, that's shalom, which actually conveys wellness, well-being, wholeness, welfare. So it's not just peace, it's more than that. It's it's a good life, having welfare and well-being and wholeness in one's existence. It's basically this, the reward for obedience is a good long life, blessed and generally free of catastrophe. It's it's, it's somewhat shocking to say that. That's what Solomon's saying here. Obey, son. If you do, you will have a blessed life. Take all that I'm saying to heart, believe it, and do it. Obedience will reward you with a satisfying life. It's interesting if you look at what he calls for the heart to be involved in keeping the commandments. Solomon's call is not to his son to to be an intellectual expert in the scriptures, but a devoted and submissive follower of the Lord. That's the issue. He doesn't say, Solomon, remember all the Bible quiz things. I don't care if you actually believe them. Just remember them, do them. God's obligated to bless you. No, obey from your heart. Believe these things and live in accordance with them. Be a devoted and submissive follower of the Lord. So I read these two a couple of things were striking in our context. Solomon expects his son to take in all the teaching that he's received and to respond accordingly with heart obedience. So we ask this question, which is a challenging question in our context. Do we appreciate the truth that we take in, but don't apply it in obedience from the heart? Do we appreciate the truth that we take in without actually applying it in obedience from the heart? When Solomon says, don't forget my teaching and the commandments, I, I, I think, think of our Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Sunday school, men's events, women's events, conferences, Bible studies, your own study Bibles, commentaries, books, and books and books, not to mention radio sermons, MP3s. You can listen to anybody you want. You can listen to a sermon by Martin Lloyd Jones. I encourage you to do that. But it's amazing. All of that teaching that's available to us. And if it's biblical teaching, we would put it in the category of commands and instruction and wisdom from God. And it it's humbling to think of the, the volume that we take in and say, wow, are we living lives that evidence that we're forgetting, that we're forgetting the teaching that we've received? Another question just from these first two verses, do you believe that obedience will actually lead to a satisfying life? Do you believe that obedience will lead to a satisfying life? Every one of these couplets, we could ask that question, do, we, do you believe this? That's what I found myself asking, do I actually, do I believe this? This is a pretty, pretty bold statement. Obedience will lead, will lead to a long, full, satisfying life. Where it really gets, gets at us is if we say yes, then it means that we believe saying no to the, our flesh will actually result in more satisfaction. Because there's a more satisfaction in doing God's will than there is in satisfying our flesh. Obedience leads to a life of satisfaction. Second principle, godliness leads to a life of esteem. Godliness leads to a life of esteem. Verse three, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. This is a call to make God's character an essential part of your character. Godliness is God likeness. Godliness is reflecting who God is in who you are. And the terminology that's used, kindness and truth, are actually terms that are essential parts of whom God has revealed Himself to be. Kindness here is the the workhorse term that we. Have you often encounter in Old Testament, it's hesed, it's loving kindness, it's translate loving kindness, steadfast love, it involves grace and mercy, covenant faithfulness, the whole, just this whole pa- package, it's hard to translate in English. And it's one of the terms that reveals who God essentially is in his astonishing and righteous character. And that's what's actually used here. Along with truth, you have the faithfulness of God and his Steadfast love, loving kindness, covenant faithfulness, full of grace and mercy is a stuff. It, it's who God is. And here the, the proverb says, don't let those leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The word pictures imply first that you're to d- diligently remain connected to these things. Don't let them go. Remain connected to these these attributes. These things need to be yours. Don't let them flee your character. Don't let them leave. In order to be a permanent adornment for our lives. The life of a Christian is to be constantly adorned by this kindness or loving kindness and truthfulness. Solomon says, bind them around your neck. So they're connected to you, but maybe the idea is an adornment. These are always evidenced in your life. And then he says, write them on the tablet of your heart. That is, weave them into the fabric of your very character. They're to be imprinted on your heart in such a way that these characteristics define who you are. Solomon says that wisdom is... Reflecting God's character. Wisdom is godliness. In particular, godliness that looks like God's loving kindness and his utter trustworthiness. And what's the motivation for that? Verse 4. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. The reward for God's character being your character and reflected outward is Favor with God and esteem with others. Those who are full of the godlike qualities of kindness and truthfulness will be esteemed, will be favored by God in heaven and will be esteemed by men on this earth. Good reputation. See any examples of this, Job. Job is a man who had a good reputation both in heaven and on earth. God put his reputation out there before none other than Satan. Have you considered him? There's no one like him. That's having a good reputation with God. And he was called the greatest man that there was at the time. He, he had a good reputation with all who were around him prior to his, his trial. Job had a good reputation. Jesus, in words that sound exactly like this passage, is said in Luke 2.52, to be growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. A requirement for spiritual leadership in the church is to have a good reputation with those outside the church, 1 Timothy 3, 7. So a good reputation matters. A good reputation with others matters. A good reputation with those who aren't even Christians matters. Solomon says it's a reward, and it's a reward that comes when godliness in the form of this loving kindness and truthfulness are part of your character. The opposite of these verses is to be the kind of person whose character actually denigrates the name of Christ. That's the type of person who has a type of character that when somebody finds out they're a Christian, they say that, that's what a Christian looks like. If that's what a Christian looks like, I don't want any part of it. No, Christians should not fear, sinfully fear. These verses aren't a call to a fear of man, okay? These verses aren't, aren't suggesting that we should sinfully fear what others think when doing God's will. However, we should absolutely care what others think of us and our reputation matters. And here Solomon says, these are the things that need to be your adornment, these essential characteristics. I'm just saying, an unkind or an untruthful Christian is an oxymoron. Godliness looks like God and in particular it looks like God's loving kindness and a a character full of grace and mercy and loving kindness and trustworthiness Solomon says that we're to seek after that godliness that, that that's what wisdom looks like and that the motivation for that is that you'll have favor with almighty God and a good reputation with those who are around you thirdly Dependence on God leads to a life of ease. Dependence on God leads to a life of ease. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Here, verses 5 and 6, you have three Sort of five bleeds into six, the, the instruction, the wisdom instruction portion of this, this pairing. You have three statements, three, three wisdom instructions. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him. And then the, the motivation comes at the end of verse six. Now these verses need no introduction, right? These are famous verses. These are everyone's life verses. And it's interesting just to consider them in the context of these 12 where rewards... And wisdom principles are being linked, and there's just a litany of them, and this falls right in the middle, but it plays, I think, a strategic role. Trust in the Lord with all your heart is a call for total commitment to the Lord with all of your being. To trust with all your heart is utter dependence. All of who you are, your entire mission control center, as we said earlier, is reliant upon the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. That is a refusal to lean upon your own intuition, your own sense of things. Don't seek the support of your own thinking divorced from God's wisdom. I wanna read that again. To obey, verse 5b, to not lean on your understanding means that you refuse to lean upon your own intuition that you don't seek the support of your own thinking divorced from God's wisdom. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Ways is shorthand for your life. How you live. What you do. What you think. It's all encompassing. To acknowledge that it's really know. Know the Lord. To acknowledge here is... It indicates that knowing him impacts is to impact every aspect of your life and in the context with verses 5a and b to in all your ways acknowledge him in parallel with not leaning on your own understanding in parallel with trusting in the Lord with all your heart the idea is that there's no part of your life that isn't submitted to the Lord in obedience there's no area that you're sort of keeping aside and saying my wisdom's good enough here I'll seek the Lord for this, I'll seek the Lord for that, even the majority of things, but over here I'm gonna keep this. Solomon says that a life of wisdom acknowledges the Lord in all of your ways. It's interesting, one of these statements is attention grabbing, but three stacked together should be unforgettable. A life of wisdom is a life of absolute dependence on the Lord in every area of life. The refrain of Proverbs, as we've said, I believe every sermon through Proverbs, is that you aren't wise enough. I'm not wise enough. And these verses add emphasis to that and say you need to forsake your own so-called wisdom and look to the Lord in absolutely everything. As much a positive instruction this is, often in the sort of life verse understanding of this, we we only think of the positive, the trust aspect. This is just as much a call to abandon your self-confidence as it is to throw your confidence in the Lord. There's a positive negative aspect here. Do not lean on your own understanding. Abandon confidence in yourself. It calls for a submission of your will, your heart, your mind, all to the Lord. Now I did a quick search and counted at least 20 verses. There's more probably than that that where listening and hearing the instruction that's being given is stated. That's just in proverbs, it's not scripture-wide. 20 verses only in proverbs that basically say, "Listen and hear because you're not wise enough." And here, Solomon says, "Trust the Lord. Don't trust yourself. Acknowledge Him in everything." Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel, trust, depend on the Lord. Now, what is this not? This is not a verse that says, just let go and let God. Hey, what are you doing about this particular situation? Nothing. God's God's got it. What do you mean nothing? Literally, I mean nothing. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not engaged with it. I'm just, I'm just trusting the Lord. That's not what it means. It's not hope for the best. It's not crossing our fingers. And it's not ignoring God until we want something. Proverbs 2, we just heard the last time we looked at this, the whole chapter, seek wisdom. Seek after it. You'll find it. So it can't be just sitting back and, and not doing anything, not engaging our hearts and minds. So what is it? I think a life of trust in the sense of these verses is a life that's utterly committed to his will. So many of the things that we struggle with trusting the Lord in have actually been laid out for us in the scriptures. Trusting the Lord means that we're committed to what he's revealed as his wisdom and that that way is best and that that's ultimately what we need. It's trusting the insight and the wisdom that he has given through his word, through his commands. It's also a recognition of the severe limitation of your own intuition, again. And a seeking, an active seeking, as Proverbs two states in other places, of the wisdom that only comes from above. Trusting God looks like seeking wisdom from him. It means going to the Lord and asking for the wisdom that we don't possess. It means seeking counsel for those who are going to give us wisdom from the word of God that we need and it means trusting that God's final word in a situation is the final word in the situation it's utter dependence on him confidence in God for every aspect of your life because you know him now what's the motivation for this verse 6b the reward of a straight smooth life path that's that's it Do these three things. Do this one thing stated three ways rather in 6B. He will make your paths straight. It's a smoothing, a leveling. Curves taken out, hills lowered, obstacles removed. That's why we said in the principle that it's a life of ease. A life of trust in God is rewarded with a life of certain guidance along a smooth and a certain pathway. That does not mean we don't face trouble. And in fact, we're gonna see at the end of this text, that Solomon even accounts for that in this passage. Life's not always easy. That's not what's stated here, but what is stated here is that dependence on God leads to an easier go of it. Obstacles are removed. That's That's the implication. The windy hilly path of difficulty is made less difficult through dependence, through faith that relies on the Lord and his wisdom. The person of wisdom pictured in these two verses is one who's teachable. It's a person who's teachable. Really, our response to these verses is life-defining. Do we seek God's answers for life's questions, and do we know where to look? That It defines who who we are, how we respond to this. Do we go to the Lord for the answers to the difficult questions and what we're dealing with? And is God's word sufficient to deal with what we're facing? This says it is. Proverbs 3, 5 says that God's wisdom is what we need more than anything else and in fact our own is insufficient. It won't do it. By implication, God's word is utterly sufficient for all that we need. To trust the Lord, to not trust ourselves, to acknowledge him in everything is to trust the sufficiency of his wisdom and say, this, this will ease my path. Not my gut feeling about something, but this. Or my thoughts about something measured and tested and refined, by this, by God's word, by God's wisdom. To reject what it says here, to reject the, the wisdom that says you need to trust the Lord, you shouldn't lean on yourself, and you need to acknowledge him is a rejection of the sufficiency of God's will, God's word, God's wisdom. Dependence on God leads to a life of ease. The fourth principle, humble holiness leads to a life of wellness. Humble holiness leads to a life of wellness. Verses seven through eight are closely related to verses five and six, but I believe they're distinct. Verse seven, here's the principle. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is, again, a prohibition of self-trust and self-confidence. Someone's just laying it on. There's four wisdom statements here that all say your intuition is not enough. Don't trust yourself. Proverbs 12, 15, the the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Don't trust yourself. A man who's truly wise is not wise in his own eyes. That's the implication of this verse. That's the implication of the rest of Proverbs. Instead, he's wise enough to know that he needs wisdom from above. Now, the second part of the instruction is that the fear of the Lord is to govern our behavior. If we're not wise in our own eyes, then what what governs how we live? And that is ultimately, as we saw way back when in chapter one, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Here he says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. In contrast to trusting yourself, Trusting your own wisdom, trusting your own insight. Here, Solomon says, fear God, fear the Lord, and turn, turn from evil. The fear of the Lord is what we think of God, it's our heart response to that thinking and then the decisions we make as a result of that. And turning from evil is shown here, it's the natural response for the God-fearer. You turn away from it. Implication, being wise in your own eyes might lead you down some evil paths, rejecting God's wisdom. Now, what's the motivation for this? It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. The motivation here says that right living through right thinking has a positive effect on our bodies and minds. Our bodies and minds are affected by the way that we live and the way that we think. And this says, turning from the wisdom of ourselves, turning toward the wisdom that is God's in the fear of the Lord, brings wellness. It brings wellness. You know all the corporate programs that they have now, wellness programs, that's a big thing, trying to keep everybody healthy, healthy body, healthy mind, all kinds of things that companies are paying millions upon millions of dollars for to secure the wellness of their employees. Exercise. Counseling, diet. This verse says that right thinking in accordance with God's will brings that wellness to your life. This verse taken with five and six emphasizes the absolute limitation of our own abilities. Just briefly, listen to the words of augur. This is gonna come up way, way, way later in Proverbs 30. I think verses five, six, and seven rightly understood should lead us to this, this self-assessment. Are you ready? It stings. Okay. Surely, I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. This isn't phony, sort of self-deprecating humility, I'm stupid, everybody else is really smart. This is in contrast to the wisdom of Almighty God and his ways that are laid out in his word, Agar says, I don't have understanding. I haven't learned wisdom, I don't have the knowledge of God that I need, which that's the path to wisdom, that's a right self-assessment. Notice he concludes that with confidence in the sufficiency of scripture to make him wise. How does he end? How does he he come out of that self-assessment? He says this, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Humble holiness leads to a life of wellness. It's interesting, thinking about conflict, struggles that we have going on in, in our lives, Relational conflict, conflict in marriage, conflict within the body of Christ, conflict with counselors. How many times in those situations of conflict have you come genuinely to whoever, whether you're on whichever side of the conflict, but both, coming to that with an open Bible? Genuinely seeking wisdom and teachability. It's interesting. If the spirit that's here in these verses that says, don't trust yourself, Don't lean on your own wisdom, but lean on God. How many conflicts would be resolved through a right self-assessment that says, let's open God's word. Let's actually see what God says about it, because I don't trust that my assessment of this situation is accurate. And if both people are coming to that saying we need God's wisdom for this, it seems that that would be a path forward. Teachability is so important and a right view of self And he dangles the carrot and says, that leads to a life of wellness. Fifth, the fifth principle. Faithful giving leads to a life of plenty. Faithful giving leads to a life of plenty. Verse nine, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The wisdom instruction here is in the context of worship and offering under the Mosaic law. The idea is bring what the lord's given you your income your 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 really your wealth produce in in the ancient near east was income it was wealth it wasn't merely their sustenance this is saying what you've acquired what is your wealth what your financial situation is based upon give of that to the lord honor him worship him the idea is that those who are wise worship god from their wealth that's the principle And the motivation for this, verse 10, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God will provide for those who honor him. As he says, those who honor the Lord with their wealth will be provided for. All of us have heard the abuses of these verses. All of us have heard these verses used as a promise to write a check for a certain amount so that you'll receive a check over and above that certain amount back in the mail. And that has absolutely nothing to do with what Solomon is talking about. And I know you know that, but it's, it's sad that I can't even read these verses in the wisdom that they're in without thinking of how they've been molested by false teaching. This is not the prosperity gospel. Unlike that teaching, this says that those who truly love the Lord, who, who worship him from hearts that actually desire to worship him, from hearts that actually desire to bring those things to him, can trust that he will provide for their needs. And in fact, this, these verses go beyond provision into abundance, fullness. The idea here is not if I give a certain amount, God's obligated to give a certain amount back. The idea is that wisdom honors God. Wisdom desires to worship God, and the motivation for that is trust that God will take care of those who are his children. This is one of the big ones in this text that I said, do I believe this? You know, as I read it, it makes me a little nervous. I mean, do I believe that honoring, that the Lord is going to give abundance and fullness and the idea of overflowing just, just because I'm, I'm faithful to give? Look, The Lord is not, again, obligated. This isn't a pyramid scheme sort of thing that God has working in heaven. It's him saying, trust me. Honor me, worship me from your heart, and trust me to take care of you. Wisdom extends to how we worship. That's one principle from this. Wisdom extends to how we approach God and how we worship and the decisions we make. Sixth principle Accepting discipline leads to a life of acceptance. Accepting discipline leads to a life of acceptance. Verse 11, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. This verse is familiar. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. Very interesting in this text. We've just got done hearing about all these motivations which are material blessing. You've heard me use words like ease and wealth. And now Solomon brings up discipline, which by implication says life's not always easy. That that it may not always seem like you're on the straight, smooth path that's free of obstacles. God accounts for that here in these verses, here in his wisdom. And the principle of wisdom, the instruction is, don't loathe what the Lord is doing for you through discipline. Don't respond negatively to God's discipline in your life. Not all that we experience is pleasant. And God has designed his world in such a way that difficulties and hardships are used to grow and mature as children. We're to see it as a sanctifying grace from God. Don't reject it. Don't despise it. See it as the Lord's gracious work in your life. And that leads to a life acceptable to God. His discipline is intended actually to move us into the path of wisdom. You see that he's given all these wisdom principles, told us the motivation to help us pursue those things, and then at the end he says, and oh by the way, when you're disciplined by the Lord, which is he's gonna kick you back in to this path of wisdom, don't reject that. Don't despise that. Because a wise person sees his discipline as a blessing. We should expect discipline when we don't obey the Lord's teaching and commandments, when we don't cultivate a godlike heart of loving kindness and truth, when we are self-trusting, self-sufficient, and do not lean on the Lord, when we're arrogant, confident in our own approach to life, and when we refuse to honor God with our worship. Now here, the motivation is actually an explanation. Verse 12, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Why should we not reject discipline? Because it's good, because it's from a loving God who only disciplines those whom are his children, whom he loves. He says it is a loving, good thing. The most loving thing the Lord can do for us is correct us when we're not wise, when we're living like fools. And we should be cautious here. This isn't like a license to interpret providence and be like Job's friends. Somebody gets sick at church, you go to their house, what's the secret sin in your life? That's not necessarily the path here. But we should see discipline as a tool of the Lord and something good for him and from him. We can always be certain that hardship in the Christian life is for our good in our difficulty. Started with an illustration about an author who wrote a scandalous book in 2006, in 2012, he did an extended interview six years after his bestseller. And the man who said at that time, I live my life the way that I want and not the way others want me to, he had a problem. He says this, the turning point came when one day I realized I was a number one best-selling author, I was rich and famous, and I'd done all these things in my writing career that I couldn't even dream of accomplishing when I'd started. All the things I thought I needed to do to make myself happy I had done and I realized I wasn't as happy as I thought I would be. So I had to kind of take a step back and realize I have everything I thought I'd ever wanted and I'm not happy. So that means maybe I need to look at myself. Maybe I need to figure some of this stuff out. I wish that, you know, you go back in time and show that college kid who was looking up to him as a hero that this guy forfeited the same path because of its destructive Influence. I wish it was a happy ending. At present, the author, I found another article, he sought after psychoanalysis and some other things, he still needs the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's, he's reaped the fruit of what he sowed, and it wasn't good. But Proverbs three leads to satisfaction. Wisdom leads to reward and satisfaction. We actually can have the life that we really ultimately want by seeking wisdom just blown away by the grace of God, the kindness of God in these verses. He forgives undeserving sinners. He reveals his wisdom for those forgiven sinners. He empowers his children to understand and live in accordance with that wisdom. And then he gives rewards when we walk and live in accordance with that wisdom. And it would take a fool to say no to the very path the Lord says is best the creator of the universe the one who controls all things utter foolishness to look at that and say that's not for me I'll do it on my own wisdom calls out wisdom is there for those who seek and has rewards for those who find it please pray with me